chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, beginning with verse 7. We're going to look at verses 7 through 19. And these verses have to do with advice to young people. It's advice to young people. Last Sunday evening, when we were together, we learned in verses 1 through 6 that the purpose of these Proverbs is to teach people, all people of all ages, wisdom and discipline, and to help them to understand these wise sayings. And through these Proverbs, people will get instruction in discipline, also instruction for good conduct and instruction for doing what's right and what's fair. And these Proverbs will make the simple-minded perceptive. And when I say the simple-minded, that's not a derogatory term. You know, for those that are, that are naive, those that are innocent, you know, you know some people, you know, in, in the way they're brought up, you know, they're sheltered. And, they're, and I don't mean that in a bad way either, because you've got to be careful when I say these days. Everybody goes... What do you mean by that? But anyway, you know, they're, they're, they haven't been out. They're not streetwise. Maybe they haven't been out away, you know, from family for very much. And, you know, and so for those that are, you know, more naive, these proverbs will give them a perception. It'll make them more perceptive. They may not know some of the things of life. Th- these proverbs will give knowledge and purpose to young people. And if you're already wise, that's great. But you know what? Listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. You know, never think that we reach a plateau where I've I've reached the top. I've made it. There's nothing else I can learn. Because when you get to that place, you're in trouble. And let those who understand get guidance. By looking at the, the depth of these Proverbs, the deep meanings in these Proverbs and these parables and wise sayings. And, and let them make you think about the questions that are being asked here. And in verses 7 through 9, we have the principles of the book of Proverbs. After Solomon gives his purpose for writing the book of Proverbs, he gives the first and most important principle for getting wisdom. Uh, look at verse 7 now. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is an Old Testament expression meaning reverential trust as well as hating evil. And we find this word used several times in the book of Proverbs. And here's the point. Unless the Lord is ruling man's heart, there can't be any real knowledge of his truth. All the different religions of the world prove how the mind and the heart of unregenerate man, that is the unsaved man, failed big time to come to a knowledge of divine truth. Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Paul said, but the natural man, that means the man who's not born again. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know the spiritual things of God. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. If we don't have the Spirit of God, we cannot discern the things of God. And according to Buddhism, the way a person lives will decide how they'll come back to earth and reincarnation. If you know you believe in reincarnation. If they have good karma when they come back, they'll enjoy a better life than their first one. But if not, they might come back in a lower life form, like a cow or a cockroach. That wouldn't be good. You know, everything depends on your good works in Buddhism. 
all striving, all seeking after true knowledge, wisdom, and instruction, it has to start with the Lord and the book that he's given us, the Bible. The Bible is where we start in seeking the knowledge of God. People who neglect the word of God cannot hope to come to a knowledge of his word. They can't hope to come to a knowledge of his truth. So this life that we're in right now, this pilgrimage that we're on, it's, it's, you, know, you can liken it to traveling on the freeways. And the Bible is God's signpost along this freeway of life. And it tells you which way you should go. You know, Proverbs 14, 12 says, this is, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And man, there's all kinds of ways that, that man seeks and, and that thinks he's right. You know, the word, the word uh, uh, way here where it says there is a way, the word way can mean a road walked, a course of life, <clears throat> or a mode of action. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, God said this, your own ears will hear him. Right behind you, a voice will say, this is the way you should go, whether to the right or to the left. This is the way. Walk in it. Right behind you, a voice will say, that still small voice, this is the way to go, you guys. Whether to the right or to the left, this is the way. Walk in it. You see, God has laid out a path for you. And we either accept it or we don't end up with God. If we don't follow that path that God has laid out for us, we don't end up where God is. And you know what? That, that path is not negotiable. When we get off at the wrong exit in life, we hear God's voice correcting us. And we have to be willing to follow his instructions. Any person who doesn't pay attention to God's signpost, that is the Bible, will never get to their desired place of safety. Because their thinking is wrong. Their thinking is based on a wrong foundation, so in the end, they're going to end up at a wrong or partial uh, uh, conclusion. It says here at the second part of verse, uh, verse 7, it says, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't learn from wisdom and destruction, and, and instruction. The word fool in Scripture refers to somebody who's arrogant and self-sufficient. It's somebody who lives their life as if there was no God. And you know what? Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, as A.W. said, they're, they're like practical atheists. They live as if God didn't exist. Now, the rich man, uh, in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, the rich man, he wasn't mentally deficient. He wasn't lacking in smarts. But here's why he was a fool. Here's why the Lord called him a fool. Because he thought, okay, he thought, this was his own thinking, that his soul could live on the things that he had stored in the barn. Not thinking about his eternal well-being. There's an illustration that kind of pictures this thought here. There was a man driving down the highway, and he gets a flat tire. So he, you know, he pulls off the road. It just so happened that he parked by an insane asylum and one of the men from the insane asylum was on the other side of the fence watching him change the flat tire. Now, the man didn't say anything. He just watched the guy changing his flat tire. And as the man took off the tire, he put all the lug nuts into the hubcap. Then he accidentally knocked over the hubcap and all the lug nuts fell out. 
They fell down into a sewer, and he couldn't get to them. So, you know, he gets up, and he's scratching his head, and he's pacing back and forth. He's wondering, what do I do now? The man behind the fence watching him said, why don't you take one lug knot off of each of the other wheels and put them on this wheel? Then you could drive safely to the gas station and buy some to replace the ones you just lost. The man changing the flat tire looked at him in amazement. And he said, why didn't I think of that? You're the one in the institution, and yet you're the one who thought of it. The onlooker said, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. (laughs) And the book of Proverbs is trying to get you and me out of a position of being stupid in life. If we'll just listen and apply this wisdom, it will be a big help to us. And the book of Proverbs, man, it has a lot to say about stupidity, as we'll see. Men show how foolish they are the most when they ignore the Bible. And they hope to get wisdom in some other way. A few pages from this book are worth a lot more than all the other books in the world combined. Without God, this world is drifting aimlessly, as we can see. It's a mess. You can see by the, the stupidity of the decisions that are being made. It's a world that's, 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 that's drifting aimlessly on, on a stormy sea, tossed around. It, it has no compass. It has no rudder. And sooner or later, it's, gonna, it's bound to hit the rocks and sink. But Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it seems like men just can't learn from their mistakes. One cynic said this, all we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And it's true. And then in verses 8 through 9, we have respect for authority. Look at verse 8 now. And Solomon begins, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. Now, the home relationship, man, that is an important relationship. And God have mercy on us, the parents who aren't instructing their, their, in this case, their little ones in the things of God. The mother and father mentioned here could possibly be David and Bathsheba. Solomon probably couldn't have had better instructors to teach him the, the good way and the right way to live. Abraham. He definitely had an influence on his son Isaac. Think of it. How many young men, and and when it speaks of of Isaac, Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, Isaac wasn't an eight-year-old or nine-year-old kid. He was around 22 years old. He was a grown man. But how many young men, 22-year-old men, do you know who would climb up on an altar and say, okay, dad, light me on fire? Genesis 18, 19 said this about Abraham. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, and that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has spoken to him. God said this before Isaac was even born. Yoshebed, Moses' mom. Yoshebed had a strong influence on her son Moses. And even after Moses went to live with Pharaoh's daughter, his mother's instruction and influence was obvious because it stayed with him. Egypt and all of its wisdom, Acts 7.22 says, could not destroy what his mother, Yoshebed, planted in his heart when he was a little boy. Man, they say those first seven years 
of instruction and home life is the foundation that's set for them. God always supports parental authority because it's the first authority the children come to know. And when that child submits to that parental authority, he is a happy child and double happy if if he's led by godly parents. And what we do has a greater impact than what we say. And how many times do we say, you know, do what I tell you. You know, do what I tell you. But yet we don't do it. What we do has a greater impact than what we say, especially in the home. In Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19, Jesus said this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. He says, in other words, not one dotting of the I, not one crossing of the T will not, won't be fulfilled. It'll all come to pass. The earth, and the, and the earth will pass away first. So he says, whoever ignores the least commandment, notice, and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be great, uh, called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice it says, what he does, they shall be called great. But whoever says and ignores the least commandment and teaches others to do the same, all right, they will be the least. What Jesus is teaching here is the preeminence of Scripture. You see, Jesus placed a premium on doing, not hearing and knowing. Jesus placed doing before teaching. We look at in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Listen to what James says. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, notice that, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself. He goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. That as he looks in the mirror, you know, he he walks away and he forgets what he saw. He immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, which is the word of God, who looks into the perfect law of liberty, notice, and continues in it. And is not forgetful, but a doer of the word. He said, this one, notice, he points out, this one will be blessed in what he does. The blessing comes to the doer, not to the hearer, not to the one who knows. It comes to the one who does. The blessings in life come from obeying God's word, from doing God's word. Children learn their values, their morals, and their priorities by watching how their parents act and react every day. If parents show a deep reverence for God and and a disobedience and a dependence upon God, so will the children. They will catch, they will see these attitudes. They will mimic them. So let them see your reverence for God, your dependence upon God, your obedience to God. Teach them how to live right. And by giving worship an important place in your family. And in your home, by teaching them the scriptures, praying with them, going to church. Solomon, not not just sending them to church. Going to church with them. You know, the the church ministry is is not a babysitting ministry. And then you you have parents that will come and drop them off. And I won't pick you up, you know, after church. We'll pick you up when, when, when ministry service is over. 
Solomon explains the reason behind the instructions given by parents. He said, because, notice verse 9, they will be a grateful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. And man, an obedient child, as we all know, is a joyful thing to watch. The parent's desire is that the children obey what they've learned. So that God's truth will become a lovely ornament. It says here, like an ornament around his neck to beautify their lives, like a crown on a king or a necklace on a queen. And John said in 3 John 2, 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And as parents, isn't that the truth? We have no greater joy than to, than to know that our children are walking in the truth. Paul told Christian servants in Titus 2.10, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That simply means to make the the Bible beautiful to others by living a godly life. And the the, the, the child who learns to submit to their parents' authority early in life, they will learn to respect all authority. And eventually, the one who's been raised to respect authority, they'll be entrusted with authority. You know, this is speaking of the submissive neck here. Like, you know, that, that obedience and that beauty of that child walking in truth is like an ornament, a necklace around their neck. It's that submissive neck, that neck that bows to authority. It's a picture of the opposite of the stiff neck. The stiff neck is a symbol of pride and rebellion. Solomon said in Proverbs 17, 21, the father of a fool has no joy. You can divide the book of Proverbs into three parts. Part one is chapter one, verse 10 to chapter nine, verse 18. It deals with moral issues. The second part deals with miscellaneous issues. Chapter 10, verse one to chapter 19, verse five. And then the third part of the book of Proverbs deals with monarchical or leadership issues. Chapter 19, verse 6 to chapter 29, verse 27. Part 1 can be divided into two two sections. The way of wickedness in chapter 1, verse 10 through verse 19. And part 2, the way of wisdom, chapter 1, verse 20 through chapter 9, verse 18. Wisdom is personified as a woman. And wickedness is manifested in the immoral woman. And in, chapter, in, in verses 10 through 14 here, we have the plans of the sinful man. Look at verses 10 and the first part of verse 11. Look at Solomon here as he advises his son. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Notice that. If, if, uh, if, if my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us. Notice. In these verses, we have the invitation to take part in man's sinful plans. Now, this is temptation outside of the home. When the kid leaves the home, when the child's outside. And as parents, one of our greatest fears when they grow up and they go out and they start hanging out with their friends is, oh, where are they going to go? I mean, we should know what they're going to go, what they're going to do. They can tell us, but sometimes they, it's not what they say. But again, this is temptation outside the home. Notice these guys are telling the, son, the it, 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 Solomon says, hey, if they say come with us. And I remember the days. Hey, what are you doing? Let's go somewhere. Let's go do something. And I usually did. I had no hesitation. 
And then one day I learned a huge lesson. Because this guy came over, and I already knew he was nuts. But it didn't matter, you know. And then we just started riding around, and we ended up someplace where he broke into a bunch of cars, smashing the windows, and just was stealing all kinds of, you remember the eight-track tapes? <laughs> the cassette players and eight-track tapes? And when he got out, he says, hey, you, you get in the driver's seat. And when I come back, man, he says, take off. And I thought, oh, Lord. No, I didn't think, oh, Lord. I said, oh, man, I'm going to get caught, and I'm going to jail. I said, there's no way that I'm going to get. But we did. And I, I, that's the last time I went with him anywhere. Man, it, but it, that, the thing is, you don't always get out of it that easily. How many guys I know that went somewhere and did something with somebody, and, you know, they spent a lot of time in jail. But when they say come with us, man, you better know who it is and you better know who, who, where you're going. Don't get caught off guard. Don't get caught by surprise. This is a bold and blatant invitation to sin here. It says come with us. Come with us. Solomon was warned from the very beginning to be careful of any invitation to do wrong. You see, sin is to miss the mark. It means to stumble. It means to fall. And it refers to a falling short morally. It's a falling short morally, whether willfully or unwillfully. And we're all guilty of falling short of God's standard. As Paul said in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we already have a head start when somebody says, Come with us. I already have a fallen nature. The word here, come, refers to our thoughts, words, and actions. Thinking about what we're going to do. Thinking about what I'm gonna, where I'm going to go. It's not, it's not to... Uh, uh, the word come doesn't speak of our fallen condition of basic fit sinfulness. The sinner and the world says come. They say, the, the, the sinner and the world says, that they call us to walk down that road that leads to destruction. They invite us to go with them. It's an open invitation to anybody who wants to join them because the unlikely love to have company when they do wrong. You can get a bunch of people to go with you to sin. Try to get them to come to church with you and it's like pulling teeth. And when they say come, they're not, they're not saying come in vain. They know. They know you know, that's our fallen nature. That's our fallen sinful nature. We have a strong desire to sin. We have a, a strong desire to come. And we learn the way of sin automatically because we're, we have a sin nature. We're born with that nature. In contrast to the sinner in the world, the Holy Spirit and the bride stands at life's intersection of good and evil with the invitation to follow him, to follow a different path. The Spirit, in Revelation twenty two seventeen, the Spirit and the bride also say, come. And sooner or later, every person has to choose which way they're going to go. They have to choose which invitation are they going to accept. Which road are they going to go down? Joshua chapter 24, 15. Joshua said this, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, 
whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that young person is happy who's been taught to say no to that first invitation to go drinking or to smoke a cigarette or try drugs or sex. Now, the invitation may be sincere, it may be generous, it may be tempting. In other words, it might really be inviting. Oh, it was a generous temptation. It was, oh, it was so tempting. But the answer always has to be the same. No way. Because one thing leads to another. And you see, that's, that's where Satan hooks you. He does not tell you where that first drink is going to lead to. He doesn't tell you what that first trying out of drugs is going to lead you. You know, some people can handle it. Some people can't. And that's the, that's the thing that Satan doesn't tell you. He doesn't tell you that, that you're going to end up being an alcoholic. He doesn't tell you you're going to end up overdosing or frying your brain and, and becoming an invalid. Or catch some, you know, STD out there. He doesn't let you know. One thing leads to another. And it's better, it's better to choose a lonely path in life that ends up in what Solomon's teachers called all evil. It's better to cho- choose a lonely, be that, that, that outcast from the cool group, you know. It's better to be one of those people than to end up in a life called evil. In Proverbs 5.14, Solomon said he was on the verge of total ruin. See, he's talking from experience. He tried everything in life, trying to find happiness. But it was all in vain, he said. It was like trying to catch the wind. I was on the verge of total ruin. The best example in the Bible of a young man who refused the invitation to sin, I think, is Joseph. Great example. Joseph... You know, he'd been totally deserted by his family. And he was sold into slavery by his cold-hearted and jealous brothers. And he was sent to a foreign land. By but just the power of his personality and his ability, he, he, reached, some, he reached some status, some kind of status in Egypt, in his, in his master's house. When that temptation came to him, and it was a powerful temptation, especially for a young man who was probably in his, in his early you know, teens or, or early 20s at the sexual, of, of his, of his pe- uh, sexual you know, uh, life. A young man, a lonely man, a slave away from his family. His dreams had not come true. God told him, gave him a vision, but it hadn't come true yet. His father and his family was far away. He was probably, they, they probably thought he was dead. The morals in Egypt were totally worldly and carnal, Egypt being a type of the world. Immorality was out of control. Potiphar's wife offers to have sex with him one night or one afternoon. And the cost of saying no to her was high. He spent a couple of years in jail for, for again, for saying no. But even so, Joseph said absolutely not to the invitation to sleep with her and wisely showed his refusal. He showed his refusal in spiritual terms. He said in Genesis 39, how then can I, notice, I, 
I'm second in charge of all of your husband's stuff. And how can I do this great? Notice what he called it, wickedness and sin. He didn't call it an affair. He didn't give it any other name like the world would do. He said, this is a great wickedness and this is a sin. Notice he said, against God. Against God. Potiphar's wife couldn't argue because Joseph's answer was based on the holiness of God. Joseph's decision was the turning point of his life. But here's the thing. That decision wasn't just made in that instant. He was caught in that temptation. And he didn't have to stop and go, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Because this had been going on. Genesis 39, 10 through 12. Listen to what it says. But she kept putting pressure on Joseph. I'm reading it from the New Living Translation. But she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. But he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way. Notice, as much as possible. He did everything that he possibly could to not fall into this sin. But one day, when no one is around, when he went in to do his work, she came notice, and grabbed him. Notice the aggressiveness of sin. She grabbed him by his cloak and she said, come on. Notice when, when Solomon said, hey, when they say come with us, don't come. She said, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand and, and as he ran from the house. And you know what? That's what you have to do when sin is that powerful. You have to run. Because if you stop and you begin to entertain it, well, let's see, if I get caught or will I not get caught? Well, you know, how's this going to all turn out? Will I get away with this? You're going to fall. See, that's what, what happened with Eve in the garden. When, when, when the temptation came to doubt God's word, to not believe God's word, she began to entertain it. Well, maybe God really didn't mean what he said. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'm not really going to die. The first thing she said is, no, God said... Plain and simple, God said, I shall not eat of the tree. She should have ran as far away and as fast as she could from Satan. But that's what Joseph did. So when, See, when the time came for Joseph to make that decision, when that time came to run, he already had made up in his mind what he was going to do. We have to know ahead of time what we're going to do when sin attacks us like that. Look at now the second part of verse 11 through verse 13. If they say, again, come with us, lie us in wait to shed blood. Notice, let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol or the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Notice the encouragement now to go to with these folks to sin. Solomon quickly exposed the nature of sin here. The invitation to join the gang is followed by an encouragement to violence. Notice in verse 11, let us lie in wait to shed blood. The sinners don't even try to hide their plans. They encourage them to him to come in and to get involved in violence. Those who respond to their invitation are quickly drawn in, pulled in all the way. First comes the murder proposition. Notice what it says there. Come with us. Let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol or the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. Now think of it. We're 
we're just barely in the first chapter of the book of Proverbs. Who would have thought that when you open the book of Proverbs, as we're just starting, right away, murder is, is in your face. That the book of Proverbs would start out with the sin of murder. You think there would be a progression of sin leading to that point. But here's the thing with sin. It doesn't need any time to develop. It is full blown in us. It is just waiting for the opportunity. Sin starts out full grown. Remember the first person ever born, Cain murdered his own brother. Sin doesn't know anything about taking it slow or having boundaries. And none of us knows where sin will take us or where it will end. But one thing is for sure, sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go and it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. But see, Satan never tells you that. Here at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, Solomon warns young people that if you hook up with bad friends, it's like making a deal with the devil. Then here's the money proposition. Notice in verse 13. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. People who enjoy money and wealth find it hard to imagine the sparkling attraction of an offer of quick and easy money. It's hard to resist for some people. Verse 13 isn't talking about a make-believe world. It points to a hard, cold, cruel world. The real world. The only world that some unfortunate people have ever known in their life. Verse 14. Solomon says, cast in, he, he says of these folks, cast in your lot among us. Let us have all one purse. This speaks now of the risky. This is risky business. It sounds good. Notice what they say. Come on, join us. We'll share the loot. How many, many times have you seen somebody, they, two or three or four people, they go and they do something together, they rob a bank or something, whatever it might be, and they're going to share loot, and they end up offing somebody to get more of the share. That's what he's talking about here. This is an invitation to take advantage of others. Proverbs warns about the common purse, if you will. Splitting the loot is what he's talking about. Because of the way of human nature, there will always be a victim. And it just might be you. These, these guys' motives and goals were pure. Weren't pure. It just didn't work. What I'm saying, their motives and goals were pure. That is, they started out, if you will, it wasn't pure, but their, their, their lie was, hey, you know, let's do it together. We'll, we'll split the loot together. But it just, it just doesn't work out that way many times. And if the idea was abused even by the redeemed, many times we start, you know, as, even as redeemed, we, we, we say one thing, and it, it, but it turns into something else. How much less can we expect from a common share, you know, in, in society and the unregenerate person? And the way it works out is, hey, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. That's the way it is. Then in verses 15 through 19, we see the dangers of the sinful man. Let's begin with verses 15 and 16. Solomon says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to do evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Notice, here's the word of warning from Solomon. Jesus clearly reminds us that there are two paths that we can take in life. The straight and narrow, 
the straight and narrow road that leads to life or the wide road that leads to destruction, he said, of which many go there. The path of evil leads, lead, uh, leads downward. It leads downward to all kinds of wickedness and violence. The unregenerate man is so depraved that he would rather walk the evil path than the path that Jesus walked. Proverbs warns us, watch out. Beware of making friends with those who are involved in wicked things, in violence, pornography, perversion, selling of drugs. God wants his people to speak up against the sins of our day, which is going to bring judgment one day. Verses 17 through 19, we see now a word of wisdom. Here's where we'll close with these verses. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Solomon's illustration here is intended to warn people, young people here, who aren't paying attention to the danger of the path that they're about to be lured on. He's warning them about that. And, and he uses a bird here about, you know, who, 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 you know, is to fall into a trap. Now, wild birds are very skittish. They're very, they're very nervous. But they can often be conditioned to let their guard down. And when I was a young boy growing up in Ballin Park, I used to raise pigeons. And, you know, when you let the pigeons out, they'd fly around and some stray would join the flock. And he'd follow the, 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 the pigeons back to the cage and I'd, and I'd want to catch oh I got, I got a freebie I got a freebie you know so I'd you know set up the box with a stick on it and the string and I put some pigeon feet under there and and, and the pigeons that that you know were, were there that this was their home they they would go in there and they they were they weren't that worried about it the box but the the stray one he was on unfamiliar ground and he he would hesitate He'd get near the, the pigeon food, he'd get near the box, and then he'd, he'd walk away. But as the more time he was there, and as he watched the other birds, he started to get conditioned to let down his guard. And I caught him. He went in there, I pulled the string, and the box came down, and I had him. So again, like I said, you can be conditioned to let your guard down. Like when hunters go duck hunting, they build a blind to hide from the ducks. And then they set out realistic decoys out on the water. And then they use these real sounding duck calls to get the birds to fly in and to land just so that the duck hunters can pop out of that blind and kill them. That's the way sin works. Next, Solomon makes an observation in verse 18. He says, notice, they lie and wait. Notice for whose blood? Their own blood. They lie and wait for their own blood. In other words, self is, sin is self-destructive. Those who set traps for other people, they often fall into their own trap. Just like remember Haman, who hated Mordecai and the Jews in the book of Esther. And Haman plotted against Mordecai. He wanted to hang him and he built gallows to hang Mordecai. And then all of a sudden the tables were turned and Haman ended up being hung on the same gallows that he made to hang Mordecai. Now, men do not always suffer their con- or reap the consequences of their sin in this life. And history shows that this proverb is true. But one day, they are going to pay 
the full price for their sin. One day their, their accounts will be settled. Sometimes, you know, they, they, they have to wait. But in the great white throne judgment, all accounts will be settled there. But we can rest assured that when the time comes, payback for them will be fitting. So in closing, the last thing Solomon does here is Solomon's application. Notice in verse 19. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. In the hurry to get rich, a lot of people ignore moral principles like honesty and integrity. They build fortunes on products like alcohol or drugs that puts millions of people into bondage and brings misery to many homes. They push weak people around. They're involved in dishonest and crooked business practices. And yet they're praised by their fellow man because they look successful, because they are successful. Now the world might be impressed by their, their so-called accomplishments, but God is not impressed. Greed is one of Satan's surest traps. And it starts when he plants the idea in people's minds that we can't live without something. Oh, I got to have that. That's going to make my life so much better. And he plants that thought in people's minds that we got to have some possession or we got to have more money. Money is the cure-all. And then that desire fans its own flame until that desire becomes an all-consuming obsession. Jesus warned us in Luke 12, 15. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life. Notice, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, there's nothing wrong with possessions. If God has blessed you, great. As long as they don't possess you. Proverbs 3, 9 says, we're to honor the Lord with our possessions. So we need to ask God for wisdom to help us to recognize any greedy desire so that it doesn't get out of hand before it destroys us. And God will help you to overcome it because greed will end up robbing you of life, of real happiness and joy. You know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we find all of our joys in Him. Joys that cannot be taken away, that cannot be stolen. Father, we thank You so much for this wonderful passage here, Lord, of wisdom and, and advice, God. And Lord, it's, 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 it's directed towards the young, but it's good for young and old alike, God. Father, Your Word fits all ages, God. And we thank you for your mighty word. We thank you for your words of wisdom, Lord. And Father, we do pray that we would take it to heart, that we put it into practice, Lord, that we would teach it to our young ones, Lord, to our grandchildren, to our nieces and our nephews, God. That, Lord, we wouldn't keep such a wonderful treasure to ourselves, Lord, but we would tell all that we can. And tell them all that we can, God. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless your, your, your children, Lord. That you'd watch over them. You'd protect them. That you'd go with them and be with them this week, Lord. Protect them. Keep them healthy and safe, God. Bring us back together next Wednesday, Lord, as we meet again. 
And Father, we just thank you for your almighty word, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.